for Tuesday, October 27th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, public health agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have been hesitant to say that the coronavirus can spread through the air. It tends to stoke fear. Wow, maybe I shouldn't even have my window open because of a a virus-laden particle could float in from my neighbor, you know, down the block. Brent Stevens, who studies indoor air quality at the Illinois Institute of Technology, joins me to discuss what we know about how the coronavirus spreads through tiny floating droplets and how we can make indoor spaces safer. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. There's increasing evidence that the coronavirus can spread through tiny floating droplets, something that public health agencies have taken some time to acknowledge. Even so, there are some steps people can take to make inside spaces safer, says Brent Stevens. He studies indoor air quality at the Illinois Institute of Technology, and he joins me now for more. Brent, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. What do we know about how SARS-CoV-2, this specific coronavirus causing this pandemic, is actually spread through the air? So I think at a basic level, what we know about this coronavirus and many other pathogens, we know that there are essentially three possible ways to become infected. One is to touch a contaminated surface and then touch your face, touch your eyes, and so on. The other is uh, what's routinely called um, droplet transmission. And the way that aerosol scientists think about this is almost like ballistic droplets. I think of it as spittle that contains the virus that lands right on your face or right on your eyes, right on your mouth. And then the third possible way is via aerosol, which is generally smaller particles that can remain airborne for longer periods of time. You know, public health agencies worldwide for the first few months, several months of this uh, pandemic stated that it was mostly close contact, mostly through respiratory droplets and through touching what are called fomites, contaminated surfaces. And then as evidence has kind of gone on and built over time, what we've seen is there are some arguments against both of those. And then there's some arguments in favor of aerosol transmission or smaller particle transmission that that sort of came to light. What I'm kind of getting from you here is this is not a settled question. There's still a lot of disagreement among people like yourself, public health experts, people who research this kinds of disease transmission about how this is spread, right? 
Yeah, that's right. I, th- I mean, I think what we're seeing is a convergence of disciplines and their nomenclature. But I, I do think the evidence continues to mount for aerosol. So, you know, what do we know for aerosol transmission? We know, I think, from sort of three lines of study. There's epidemiology, there's experimental evidence, and then there's sort of physical modeling studies. And across each one of those three domains, we've seen some evidence continue to mount for aerosol or airborne transmission. So, you know, the first is indoor transmission being greater than outdoors. That's an epidemiology study or approach. These super spreading events, again, the epidemiology tell us that those probably can only happen, you know, with aerosol transmission. Granted, we also know that this is mostly transmitted through close contact, or at least that's kind of been the the infectious disease community, you know, sort of points to that evidence. So that doesn't really necessarily mean that it's not transmitted via aerosols in the air, because the concentration of those can would be a lot higher in close range. And then throughout the summer, you probably saw this as well, you know, there's experimental evidence, right, where aerosol samples were taken in hospitals, mostly in hospitals, detecting, you know, SARS-CoV-2 viral, you know, genetic material. And then most recently, infectious virus was found, you know, in aerosols in a hospital in Florida. And then there's been a number of modeling studies. And, you know, we, we did one of those in this summer using the Diamond Princess cruise ship as an example, where we sort of put all these factors in a blender and shake up a mathematical model and see what comes out and see what fits the data. In our data, it looked like there was that aerosols contributed probably more than what we defined as droplets. And this is something, too, that public health agencies, specifically the the CDC, have really evolved on as well. It was last month, I believe, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention actually came out and said, this virus can be spread through airborne particles that can linger in the air for minutes or hours, even, you know, maybe once someone has left a room. Was it surprising for you that it took the CDC um, maybe the time that it did to release that guidance? That was surprising to me. As someone who's studied indoor air for a long time and who has been really aware of a lot of research on the detection of pathogens in air and in aerosols, to me, the evidence was pretty clear that this is probably something that could be transported via aerosols in the air. One of the real problems is that this definition of airborne means different things in different scientific communities. And in the public health and infectious disease epidemiology community, my understanding is it tends to stoke fear. And it tends to mean that, wow, maybe I shouldn't even have my window open because of a a virus-laden particle could float in from my neighbor, you know, down the block. I think that that is where a lot of this mentality comes from, where you, you hesitate to use this word airborne. Both the World Health Organization and the CDC have had this sort of outdated and non-physics-based cutoff for what size particle is a droplet, meaning it falls straight to the ground, versus what size particle is an aerosol, meaning it can float around for hours. And what's really strange to me, to get directly to your question, is that the CDC, through the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, they have some of the best minds working on pathogens in aerosols in the world. Public health agencies have you know, many stakeholders that they have to um, address. But it, it certainly was a surprise to me that it's taken that long. My understanding, too, is that coming out with the definition that says the virus is transmitted by aerosols, that actually has implications for the built environment. I mean, that has implications for, say, infection control procedures in hospitals. Yeah. 
That's right. And they've been pretty consistent on aerosol generating procedures in hospitals, which is basically wear additional protection, better masks when you're performing something that you know would generate aerosols, right? And so that basically would mean that adopting a small particle potential airborne transmission mode, you know, means that in healthcare settings, you know, you you would have to have a lot more protection. And I think that's kind of the concern. Like everyone would, there would be another a run on N95s even more so, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's hard to resolve because the epidemiology and, and infectious disease community you know, doesn't really see that classic pattern of airborne transmission, meaning in their minds, highly infectious and can transport, you know, from one end of a hospital to the other. That's not what's happening. And and that's good. And ultimately, what does it do for buildings? Well, we're already physical distancing, right? Staying six feet away from each other. That actually helps aerosols in part because you're diluting the concentration that you would be exposed to downstream from someone, but it also reduces density. And so the fact that it helps, yes, it means that maybe fewer droplets are landing on people's eyes and so on, but it actually also helps aerosol transmission as well. Masks can help both. It's just that you might need a little bit better mask than you thought um, instead of one layer, maybe two layers. That to me is potentially important. It doesn't mean you still shouldn't do hand hygiene or surface cleaning because as far as we know, both droplets and aerosols, any kind of expelled respiratory particle could contain the virus and land on a surface. You could still touch it. But essentially, it just means like ventilation and filtration become important. And what's interesting is ventilation and filtration is really, really good in hospitals. And so a lack of airborne transmission in a hospital is actually expected because they're designed to prevent airborne transmission. (laughs) Sure. And I want to talk a little bit about practical considerations for people who maybe aren't in healthcare settings. I mean, I want to start first about this kind of idea of six feet, right? This has kind of been drilled into people as, you know, as close as you want to get to someone who's not like a member of your close household, right? If we have increasing evidence that this virus can be spread more on these, you know, smaller particles, should we be rethinking six feet? I think not necessarily. I think what we can't do is assume that as long as we're 6.1 feet away from someone else, that we don't have to wear a mask or we don't have to worry about ventilation. I think there's plenty of evidence, and this came out really early on, showing how far particles emitted from a cough can transport, right? Up to 25 feet, up to 28 feet. And so you certainly reduce your risk going to six feet. But the idea that a ballistic, almost a bullet, um, I, I think the way that physicists or aerosol scientists think about how respiratory droplets move, if they're large ballistic droplets, think of like an arrow that just can't go very far before it reaches the ground, you know, like a weakly shot arrow. And therefore, if you're six feet away, you're okay. That doesn't seem to be the case. That was never actually really true for big droplets either, because even some big droplets can be carried away with a cough and so on and so forth, uh, much further than six feet. It's one of the the layers that I think we continue to, to have to use. Have you seen this like Swiss cheese model of risk. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. People people have heard that many times on this podcast. <laughs> right. So it just means we can't have absolute faith in six feet. That's all. That's all I think it really means. So thinking about that Swiss cheese model, multiple interventions, I mean, something else that experts have really encouraged people to do if you are going to be in an interior space is to think about ventilation. Practically, what are things people can do in their homes, in their workspaces to make them safer when we think about ventilation? 
I think we hear lots of advice that ventilation is good, more ventilation is better, but there's not a lot of quantitative information there. And so I have a few thoughts here. For one is in public spaces, you know, like um, bars, you know, restaurants, you know, offices, I've seen this floating around and no pun intended and, and have thought of this for a while. You know, if you go to a restaurant, right, there's a food grade, you know, there's a health grade, right, like on the wall that you can check. I thought early on into this, and I know other building scientists and so forth did as well, why not get the building checked and sort of get your marker? Is it ventilated or, or to what level is it ventilated? Is it an A, B, C, or D? And I think with national leadership on this, that could have happened. What's been interesting to me is, I don't know if you saw in New York City about a month ago, they did these sort of qualitative ventilation assessments of all their classrooms and their public schools. And ventilation in schools has always been a good thing. It's been a good thing for air quality, and it's been shown to be, you know, associated with positive outcomes on school performance and test taking and even cognition. And for the first time that I'm aware of, a major municipality like New York City did ventilation assessments in their schools. And they ended up, there were, I think, 21 schools that they refused to open because they, pa- they didn't pass the ventilation system checks. I think more of that would be great. I don't think that we're doing that very widespread. I think the best that we can do, it's sort of an odd question, you know, but it's if you go to a facility, whether you're asked to return to work or whether you're at a grocery store or whatever, I think managers should be aware that people may ask them, you know, what have you done for ventilation or or filtration in this building? Have you followed, you know, guidance from the from ASHRAE, the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Engineers, or have you followed CDC guidance? It's sort of a crazy, can I speak to your manager type of question, but it's not unreasonable to me. (laughs) Workers are being asked in in many sectors to go back to work. And with the economy the way it is now, or, or maybe not in a position to turn work down, even if those standards aren't being met. So what can someone say do on their own? Should they open a window? Should they bring fans in? Like, what are some like practical things that maybe people can do themselves? Yeah, so I've talked to a number of school teachers who are in a position where they're not quite sure that what their school is doing for ventilation. And some systems are limited. Some buildings are limited. And so some are turning into bringing like personal air cleaners. I think the best thing you can do is wear the best mask that you can find that is also comfortable. And also to make sure that your facilities have a mask policy. If everyone is wearing a mask that doesn't have exhaust valves on it, that's not just a single ply of cotton that doesn't filter very well. If everyone's wearing a mask in the space, then all of these other things don't matter that much, right? Ventilation just doesn't matter as much. Filtration doesn't matter as much because you're, you're getting it at the source and at the receptor. And I think that's why, you know, bars and restaurants are so challenging because people take their mask off. And every time that happens, there's a, a weak point. You mentioned that masks are maybe the first best step. I mean, I'm thinking I know teachers who are in buildings where they have multiple fans, windows open to try to increase ventilation. So is that not effective? I mean, or is it just that masks are so much better and more important? I think masks are more effective and more important because they target the source, right? They target an infected individual, asymptomatic or not. They target capturing their respiratory emissions. And then they also filter your own breathing in. I think the issue with ventilation is that there's limits. Um, So even if you have a really well-ventilated space, 
you may cut the risk down by a factor of five or 10. It doesn't mean it goes to zero. And the same for air purification or, or filters, right? So those are often limited, not even by the filter. The filter would be really good. They're limited by how much air can pass through them. And so both of those are good. There are these sort of cases in the literature where sort of a poorly positioned air cleaner would actually like move droplets from an infected individual into someone else's breathing zone. So so you get into kind of this whole reliance on, oh, wow, gosh, well, now which way is my air filter pointing? Is it pointing in the right way? Well, who's sick in my classroom? And so on. And there's just so many unknowns. And broadly, they should work, right? And, and reduce um, both the ventilation and filtration would reduce the amount of virus in the air. But I just don't think it's enough to drop that first line of defense in terms of a mask. People may have seen and heard or maybe even considered buying, you know, an air purifier, uh, a, a HEPA filtration system. I would assume the same thing with ventilation, that those kinds of tools are maybe only going to do so much for you. And are there some maybe that people should try to avoid because they actually are not going to do anything? There is this huge new market, you know, for, for air cleaning technologies, especially. And so the problem with some of these um, exotic technologies, particularly the ones that rely on, you know, oh, we're going to put these different compounds in your space, or we're going to put these ions in the space, and they'll go around and they'll destroy the coronavirus, and they'll, you know, react with all the, these other pollutants, and they'll make particles bigger, so they settle out of the air. For one, there's not a lot of good peer-reviewed literature that those actually work, and most of the manufacturer test reports that they point to, I'm highly skeptical of because they're done very poorly. They tend to look like they're overstating their results. So the first question is, do they work or not? The second question is, even if they work, are they generating irritating byproducts or anything like that through their operation? And unfortunately, there is just a huge gap in knowledge here. We're doing some testing um, just last week and this week on one example product. We can't keep up um, with everything that's coming out there, but we are certainly concerned with many of these types of technologies that purport to you know, scrub coronavirus from the air um, have the ability to also react with other things that are in the space and create other pollutants. Uh, and, and so there's sort of this complex indoor chemistry that uh, is likely to occur, or at least I would like to see good evidence that it doesn't occur rather than just the sort of weak manufacturer reports that I've seen. One of the things that I am curious to get your take on is what this is going to do to the built environment and kind of the, the, the spaces that we share with people. I think I'm pretty optimistic in that space. For one, as an indoor air quality researcher, the number of you know, media requests asking about ventilation and, and particles in the air has absolutely, you know, exponentially grown. And so I think more and more people are informed. You know, I think I recognize this summer, I got contacted by some property development companies um, and some people who work in commercial real estate, and they were wanting to know about indoor air quality. Once it makes its way into sort of the commercial real estate sector, I think that means that it's really on the public conscience. And so I think it'll be more customary to understand, okay, this building has granite countertops, you know, good lighting. How's the ventilation and filtration? Is it, is it capable of, of meeting, you know, these minimum requirements and so on? What does that world look like? I mean, short of people just being more, more mindful of it, is this going to manifest itself in kind of the, the way that these spaces are, are built or that we interact in them? I think that more and more people will know and understand the importance of clean air, right, for their health and, and, and other aspects. 
you know, their productivity and so on. But I think what might happen is that it becomes like many things in this pandemic, those with resources do something about it. And then what happens in communities without resources, right? So this is maybe another way where the pandemic kind of widens the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. I think so. I think, but I mean, I think that's kind of how everything work, tends to work here um, in this country. So at the end of the day, I do think people will care more about their indoor air, and I think we will invest more in indoor air, and I think that'll be largely a good thing. Um, I think we should do what we can to make sure that there are sort of you can spur, you know, or incentivize fairly equal, you know, access or more equal access. But beyond that, I think the good thing is that in, in, in terms of combating COVID-19, the acceptance of aerosol transmission still means masks. It still means distancing. And, and sure, we may be able to upgrade our buildings um, and further reduce risk. Um, but that's not the only solution. Brent Stevens studies indoor air quality at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.